Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. Coming up on this week's episode of the 5 Bytes Podcast, there's some Patch Tuesday news roundup, including on a patch for a zero-day vulnerability that is not really a patch as it requires further configuration that has been described by some as a nightmare and a good reason to quit IT. Also on this episode, announcements from Nutanix's .next conference that took place in Chicago this week, and a story about another C-level executive working in tech that has been prosecuted for a work-related incident, this time covering up a data breach. For that and more, keep listening to this episode, which of course is brought to you by my sponsors, Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. And also brought to you by Networks Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM, to remove local admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. It is Patch Tuesday week once again, and this month Microsoft have patched 83 flaws three of which are zero-day vulnerabilities, two of which are reportedly being actively exploited. A full rundown of the categories or types of vulnerabilities patched this month includes eight elevation of privilege vulnerabilities, four security feature bypass vulnerabilities, 12 remote code execution vulnerabilities, eight information disclosure vulnerabilities, five denial of service vulnerabilities, and one spoofing vulnerability. The two actively exploited vulnerabilities of the zero days are CVE-2023-29336, which is a Win32K elevation of privilege vulnerability, and CVE-2023-24932, which is a secure boot security bypass vulnerability. I'll come back to that one a little bit later because that is the one that's complicated, like I said in the headlines of the beginning of the show. Uh, But first, the elevation of privilege vulnerability fix sees the Win32K kernel driver that elevates privileges to system being exploited by attackers to gain that system context. The zero-day vulnerability that is not currently being actively exploited is CVE-2023-29325, which is a Windows OLE remote code execution vulnerability. It says, in an email attack scenario, an attacker could exploit the vulnerability by sending a specially crafted email to the victim. An exploitation of the vulnerability might involve either a victim opening a specially crafted email with an affected version of Outlook or a victim's Outlook application displaying a preview of a specially crafted email. So this one is reportedly not being exploited right now, but it's likely to be exploited since even just opening a preview of an email could potentially exploit this vulnerability. But the biggest story from this month's Patch Tuesday, in my opinion, is the secure boot vulnerability that reportedly could allow an attack with physical access or admin rights on a target device to install a malicious boot policy that could see an attacker installing a UEFI bootkit, which can be invisible to security software as it loads during the initial boot phase. 
Unfortunately, as I said in the headline, customers will need to do more than just install this month's Windows updates to be protected from exploitation using this vulnerability, as the update merely provides configuration options to help protect you, but these options are disabled by default. There are a few different steps that you need to take in order to be protected. One is installing the Windows update. Uh, but two is you need to update your bootable media with Windows updates released this month. And if you do not create your own media, you will need to get the updated official media from Microsoft or your OEM. Lastly, you need to apply revocations to protect against the vulnerability. Microsoft have warned that you should recreate your Windows backups after completing all these steps. Because if you try to restore from a backup that was created before the steps were completed, it will fail. And if you use Microsoft provided bootable media while Microsoft are stating, hey, get the latest version that includes the updates. Well, it appears a bootable ISO with this patch is not yet available, at least at the time of this recording. Maybe it will be available by the time you listen, but it's not available right now. It just says on the announcement will be available soon. Microsoft have said they will be installing the updates on Microsoft managed cloud services as necessary. And specifically speaking to enterprise IT, they say if you support network boot or recovery scenarios in your environment, you will need to update all media and images with updates released on May 9th. And this includes if you're using MDT, which is Microsoft Deployment Toolkit, Microsoft Endpoint Configuration Manager, Windows Deployment Services, Pixie boot, HTTPS boot, and other network boot scenarios. One way to do this is by using the DISM or DISM offline package installation on the images that are being served by these scenarios. And this includes updating the boot files that are being offered by these services. If you use backup software to save the contents of your Windows installation into a recovery image, be sure to run a complete backup after installing the Windows updates, as I've said but also be sure to back up the EFI disk partition in addition to the Windows operating system partition and clearly identify backups that were made before May 9th because as I said earlier, if you try to restore from a backup before these patches and after you in install the patch and enable this, uh, it's not going to roll back to that backup. They say for media using Windows pre-installation environment and Windows recovery environment, based on Windows Server 2012, Windows 8.1, or Windows Server 2012 R2, you will only need the boot manager files bootmgfw.efi and bootx64.efi or bootia32.efi. And do not use this method of updating media for any other version of Windows. And if you're not using Secure Boot at the moment, which I mean, at least on your desktop, you probably should be if you want to be ready for Windows 11. But if you're not, it looks like you will not be affected by this issue. Microsoft have also provided some PowerShell scripts for the enterprise to use. And I saw that GaryTown.com shared a blog post showing how he used Intune's proactive remediation feature. And it looks pretty slick. It will check the state of the partitions available and apply the fixes and then provide warning of a machine restart. And a Twitter user by the name of Murray urges caution with this and said, Oh my God, this mitigation for CVE-2023-24932 is a massive amount of work. Get this wrong, you can brick your PCs. It also isn't just a boot disk thing. It's every disk image. 
recovery partition, and boot media service you use, plus every secure boot device and VM. Oof, this is massive. Yeah, absolutely. And others in the thread suggested they have decided to either not deploy the patch or deploy the patch and actually not enable the security protection as it will do more harm to them and carry more risk than the actual vulnerability does. So this is definitely one to weigh up, you know, as stated. I mean, it's all within Microsoft's own documentation. That isn't just someone on Twitter saying, oh, if this affects every partition, it does. Microsoft have called that out. And you can see why their patch simply provides the configuration options and doesn't do anything else. It doesn't enable anything because the risk of this one is very, very high. So before proceeding with this, you should really have a conversation amongst your team and decide what to do. Nutanix's .next conference took place in Chicago this week where they announced they will offer dedicated storage and compute nodes. Allowing dedicated nodes means HCI or hyperconverged infrastructure can be used for more workloads. Databases, for example, need some nodes tuned to compute and others for storage. And in the past, Nutanix has been primarily focused on uh, different types of workloads, specifically things like desktop virtualization. But now they're uh, widening their reach and taking on these different types of workloads and scenarios. At Nutanix's .next conference, the IT executives told the register that deconverging will mean it becomes possible to use different cloud instance types in the same virtual cluster, and users could therefore pick an instance type designed to host databases and another storage-centric instance type to store data and manage them all as just another Nutanix cluster. The register also suggested that competing hybrid cloud frameworks can't currently work with a mix of instance types. So Nutanix may be onto something here by taking advantage of the diversity offered by hyperscale clouds. And I saw Citrix was involved in the event. So while Nutanix may be looking to diversify supporting workloads, they are not throwing out virtual desktops to do this. Also announced during the event is a cloud management tool that provides a single console for visibility, monitoring, and management across public cloud, on-premises, hosted, our edge infrastructure. So it seems like Nutanix is definitely getting into competing with others in the market when it comes to this and essentially providing that kind of single pane of glass for managing across multiple clouds and on-prem. There were some other announcements too, but I'll share a link if you'd like to read those for yourself, like they announced more data services and some other things. And you can catch that at fivebytespodcast.com and you'll find the link with this episode, which is episode 281. Microsoft have announced a preview of new custom image templates that allow admins to build a custom golden image with the added capability to include Azure Virtual Desktop built-in customizations, as well as your own customization scripts to install other applications or sets of configurations. This feature is a wrapper for the Azure Image Builder service and it takes the elements that you want to include in your build and ships it to the AIB service, which builds the image, including any additional customizations you have selected from the AVD built-in customizations or those of your own. AIB will then distribute the resulting image to either a managed image or the Azure Compute Gallery, 
which supports capabilities such as automated versioning and image replication across any Azure region. Tom Hickling stated, they have created some built-in customizations that you can easily select to include into your image. And these cover typical installations and configurations used in Golden Images for which you would need to write your own PowerShell scripts to configure if using other tooling to create images. So presumably, I think that would mean stuff like maybe Terraform and Packer. Uh, and having this ability and these features within this service saves you time as it has automated the installations and configurations for you. And some of the customization options that are built in includes the ability to select to install language packs, install FSLogix, installing teams and configuring optimizations, installing and configuring multimedia redirection, configuring screen capture protection, configuring session timeouts, configuring RDP short path, and installing any outstanding Windows updates. So this is pretty interesting because I have tried to use Azure Image Builder in the past. I've tried Packer and I've tried Terraform, and they are actually pretty easy to use, particularly at the stage of actually do like building out the uh, virtual machine uh, with like a base version of Windows that's in the Azure gallery. And if you want to do very light customizations, it's easy enough to achieve. But I find that most of the services become a little bit of a challenge, at least for me, from a syntax perspective, when trying to do a lot of like uh, custom installations of applications and stuff like that. So I know these built-in options are like language packs, teams, FSLogix and so, but I'm really interested to try this out to see if it makes installing my own applications as part of the process easier. Microsoft in their announcement have said they're aware of a couple of small known issues currently, which will be resolved shortly. And the first is that Windows updates are not applying for Windows 11 OS images and setting the time zone in the set default OS language customization is not working. They say, please use the time zone redirection customization in the other scripts section instead, which will ultimately replace this one. So I think the bigger one there is the fact that uh, updates are not installing on Windows 11 OS images currently, uh, because at least from what I've noticed, if you tried to bring the latest version of a Windows operating system to create an image from the gallery, it seems like they might be a little behind sometimes. But hey, I'm excited all the same. I can't wait to try it out to see if this will replace some of my current automation. Like I'm relying a lot on RPA because I just don't want to deal with all of the headaches of the syntax. So I'll use a mix of ARM templates and RPA. So I'm using my RPA to call PowerShell to build out the VM. And then after it's built, I use an RPA to log into that machine, do some of my customizations, shut it down and set it to capture. So this could be an improvement. Frederick Bratstick from IGEL revealed a Windows 365 app for IGEL OS will be available soon. He says in his blog post that it is currently in a preview state, but it is not available for testing by customers in this preview, but will be coming to GA very soon. So that's pretty exciting because I know Microsoft, when they announced the Windows 365 app, had suggested that it will be available um, to other vendors and on other operating systems. And it makes a lot of sense for it to be available on one of the most popular thin clients out there. And well, thin client OS at least. So very cool. Microsoft have blogged about Visual Studio's new UI updates that are not available publicly yet, but they say will be soon. 
These UI updates focus on three main pillars, cohesiveness, accessibility, and productivity. And under cohesiveness, they say that it is important to make sure these updates balance a new refreshed look and feel with the familiarity of the Visual Studio their customers already know. By aligning with Fluent, Visual Studio will look and feel more seamless with the rest of the operating system and other Microsoft products. And for accessibility, they say it is important that the updates follow their accessibility best practices and make the product easier to use. And this manifests in several ways, including adjusting target sizes to make them easier to use while maintaining information density, using color more intentionally to decrease visual noise and draw attention to the active areas of the IDE and using lighter weight controls to make it easier to distinguish different actions. And for productivity, they say the UI updates work towards creating more consistent experiences making it easier to navigate the product with confidence by reducing the amount of time it takes to get familiarized with the UI. They say the update also will work to reduce cognitive load and mental fatigue, making Visual Studio a more comfortable work environment. And the blog post shows some examples with screenshots of the new UI and how they propose to reduce clutter that should help with what they just said about like trying not to overwhelm people, make it a more comfortable work environment, and presumably to improve the accessibility by reducing that clutter too. On a previous episode of the podcast, I reported on a security breach at hardware vendor MSI. One of the impacts of the breach was that source code was taken. It has been reported that source code containing signed private keys for MSI products and Intel BootGuard keys for MSI products were leaked. LeapyComputer.com has this week reported that Intel are now investigating the leak of the alleged private keys with a warning that it could potentially be impacting its ability to block the installation of malicious UEFI firmware on MSI devices. While these keys will not likely be helpful to most threat actors, some skilled attackers have previously used malicious firmware in attacks such as Cosmic Strand and Black Lotus UEFI malware. And this one's actually kind of interesting in relation to this month's Patch Tuesday, because remember that secure boot vulnerability, uh, one of the exploits of that zero day vulnerability is using Black Lotus UEFI malware. So this one seems particularly relevant in the context of what's come out this month and may also come up in conversations if you're discussing with your team whether or not to enable the protection. Tom Warren, who I consider to be a pretty credible source, shared that Microsoft have informed employees they will not be receiving a pay increase this year. With CEO Satya Nadella stating, quote, we don't take this decision lightly having considered it over several months, end quote. With the news of the layoffs in recent months, this is likely not surprising, but as political discourse, at least in my part of the world, suggests, at this point, not getting a pay increase is kind of like getting a pay cut due to the rising cost of living. You're not getting a cost of living adjustment. So there's kind of two thoughts of this. It's like, oh, should they just be happy that they still have a job or should they be upset because they've effectively taken a pay cut? I kind of understand the latter more, at least for those who are maybe not on pretty generous salaries. Garrett Foster shared his SCCM Hunter tool, which will streamline identifying, profiling, and attacking SCCM-related assets in an Active Directory domain. 
The basic function of the tool is to query LDAP with the find module for potential SCCM related assets. And this is achieved through ACL recon of objects created during the deployment process when extending the AD schema, as well as by performing queries for the keywords SCCM or MECM. So yeah, if you're thinking, oh, SCCM is the old terminology, is this still relevant? Well, MECM is technically old terminology too, but yeah, it's still relevant. And they say this list of targets is then profiled with the SMB module by checking the remarks for default shares required by assets configured with certain SECM roles. Additionally, the module checks if the MS SQL service is running and if SMB signing is enforced on the endpoint. All of this helps paint a picture for potential attack paths in the environment. Once profiling is complete, the operator can target abusing client enrollment with the HTTP module accounts or use the MS SQL module to grab the necessary syntax for complete site server takeover. If a site server takeover is successful, the admin and pivot modules are available for further information gathering and abuse. So this is potentially useful for those who are maybe looking to see how vulnerable their environment is but also potentially useful for attackers who want to exploit SCCM or MECM or Microsoft Configuration Manager, which is pretty much universal in the enterprise. Slash.org had an item recently on Apple who failed to revive a long-running copyright lawsuit against cybersecurity firm Corillium over its software that simulates the iPhone iOS operating system, letting security researchers identify flaws in the software. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a few years, because I covered it a few years ago, you will recall I covered the case in which Apple argued that Corillium software was wholesale copying and reproduction of iOS and served as a market substitute for its own security research products. Corillium then countered that its copying of Apple's computer code and app icons was only for the purposes of security research and was sufficiently transformative under the fair use standard. A three-judge panel largely agreed with Corillium, finding that Corsec furthers scientific progress by allowing security research into important operating systems, and that iOS is functional operating system software that falls outside copyright's core. So it's good, I guess, at least from a security perspective for all of us, that Apple are not reviving their copyright lawsuit. Uber's former head of cybersecurity, Joseph Sullivan, was on trial last week, accused of covering up a massive security breach in 2016, which leaked 57 million customers' users' names, phone numbers, email addresses, along with personal information and even driver's licenses of 600,000 Uber drivers. At the time, rather than go public with the breach, it was alleged that Sullivan paid the hackers about $100,000 to keep the breach secret. According to the Wall Street Journal, Sullivan's attorneys argued in court that Sullivan made the hackers sign non-disclosure agreements showing they destroyed all the hacked data, though to this day, it's unclear if it was confirmed the hacked data was ever truly deleted. Lawyers for Sullivan argued that the agreement was enough assurance to the company for them to classify the incident as a mere bug bounty. <laughs> Pretty crazy. As if the hackers were just white hats letting Uber know of its vulnerabilities rather than stealing data. After Uber's current CEO came onto the scene, reporters uncovered the hack and cover-up, and the company soon fired Sullivan and ordered an internal investigation into him and Craig Clark, one of the lawyers who reported to the former CSO. 
Sullivan has been spared prison time by the judge and will instead be put on probation and must complete 200 hours of community service. The presiding judge told the court he was showing Sullivan leniency due to the unusual nature of the case and it being the first of its kind. He also brought up Sullivan's supposed character thanks to the mass amount of letters showing the ex-cybersecurity official had their support. The judge added that if more cybersecurity officials go the same route as Sullivan, they could expect actual jail time. So it's weird. It's the first, so maybe set a precedence by having actual prison time. <laughs> but instead, it's like, oh, well, we're going to send a message and say in the ruling, I said that people in future might get prison time, uh, but you're not going to get it because this is the first instance. So you may not have expected prison time for doing this, which seems a very strange ruling. Um, but I do feel a little bit sorry for this executive, even though what he did or instructed to do was clearly wrong. Um, shouldn't have done it. Does he deserve to go to prison? Maybe. Um, personally, I think it might be a little harsh. A quick follow-up to another security story covered on a previous episode, but the Ubiquiti hacker has been sentenced to six years in prison. On justice.gov, it stated Nicholas Sharp was employed by Company One from in or about August 2018 through on or about April 1st, 2021. Sharp was a senior developer who had access to credentials for Company One's Amazon Web Services and GitHub servers. U.S. Attorney Damian Williams said, quote, Nicholas Sharp was paid close to a quarter of a million dollars a year to help keep his employer safe. He abused that trust by stealing a massive amount of sensitive data, attempting to implicate innocent employees in his attack, extorting his employer for ransom, obstructing law enforcement, and spreading false news stories that harm the company and anyone who invested into the company. Sharp now faces serious penalties for his callous crimes. End quote. Well, he certainly does. He got six years in prison, uh, but the story also indicates that uh, the company lost about $4 billion of market cap, so it had a devastating impact. And finally, for the news for this week, OpenAI CEO Sam Altman recently appeared on CNBC in the States, and when posed with questions about concerns that AI could essentially put an end to humanity, he talked about a collective response to safeguard against that and stated, quote, getting this right figuring out the new society that we want to build, how we're going to integrate this technology is, I think, one of the most important questions of our time, end quote. So I actually think that's really great marketing for OpenAI and for ChatGPT and just probably other AI services as well, is when news programs give credence to the thought that this is so powerful that it could end humanity is probably good marketing. I mean, it's somewhat true. I think during the conversation, they're like, oh, people like Elon Musk have been warning against this for years. And I thought it was a pretty uh, good measured approach. Now you look at companies like OpenAI and maybe like Google with Bard. Are those the people that you want to entrust with safeguarding humanity? I guess that remains to be seen. <laughs> we probably don't have much choice, right? Money talks and BS walks. That's the way of the world, unfortunately. But on that sunny note, here's this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. My buddy Trenton Ty produced a pretty amazing trailer for a masterclass that he'll be holding at the Citrix user group in Norway. 
The masterclass is going to be on troubleshooting and improving Windows logins. And I think nobody knows more about this topic than Trenton. And the CU in Norway is an event that I wanted to go to for years, ever since my buddy Rick Dillinger told me about it, I think, oh my God, probably seven or eight years ago. It's just hard to conjure up the time and the money to go, but someday I will go, that's for sure. And if you're going, don't miss the masterclass. Hey, and my namesake, Ronan Monahan, had a pretty great meme this week with a useful tip on password management. And that's basically that strong passwords aren't worth much if you reuse the same strong password for many services and accounts. So avoid reusing passwords. John Becker shared an edge extension created by Matt Lagrandier that finds and provides SF SVG icons from a certain cloud management portal when you visit that site. So it provides this kind of drop-down list of icons that are applicable to that cloud management portal that you're browsing to. So that's pretty cool and useful. Again, to promote a little bit of my own work this week over on RoryMon.com, I posted a short blog post and a video to accompany it on automating application packaging and patching. So in it, I show uh, my environment where I'm using Automate Tester along with some PowerShell scripts that's using the Evergreen PowerShell module that was headed up by the awesome Aaron Parker and also uses uh, the Cloud Paging non-interactive packager and the Cloud Pager API to essentially end-to-end -end automate the packaging and patching of applications. So the script will check to see if there's already a version of an application in my Cloud Pager tenant if there is, check the Evergreen PowerShell module to see if the vendor has a newer version than the one that's in my tenant. And if so, proceed with packaging. And I also wrap it up with uh, robotic process automation when there's an application that maybe is not available in the Evergreen PowerShell module or maybe doesn't work as expected. So um, I think it's kind of cool, kind of useful. In the video, I don't really go through the script itself, uh, but I'm hoping to look a little bit at least at the script during the next cloud paging user group that will be held uh, in June. So um, I'll share a link to that blog post and video with this episode, but also to the cloud paging user group if you want to check out the script as well. And you'll find that at fivebytespodcast.com with episode 281. Jerrion Bergerhout, awesome name, uh, shared a useful tip on Twitter. It's kind of an evergreen tip. I think I've even uh, shared it on this podcast before. But you may not have been aware in Outlook, there is an option, a checkbox to automatically dismiss reminders for past calendar invites. Uh, I have used it in the past and I've had it where it did not actually respect that setting. Um, but I think for the most part, it does work more often than not. And it keeps the clutter and notifications of uh, meetings to a minimum. And finally, Niklas Tinef had a blog post on a comprehensive guide to Windows Laps, and I've covered Laps a lot over the last few weeks. I mean, I've been covering it for years, but in particular over the last few weeks as it's gone into the Windows operating system. So this may be one that's topical and may be useful to you. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. As always, thanks so much for listening.